Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are an APY. APY can change at any time. From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. Mueller has been criticized endlessly by Trump and Trump's allies for his excessive zeal. But the problem with the investigation was insufficient zeal. That... He tied himself in knots to figure out a way not to say what his report led, I think, any reasonable reader to conclude, which was that Trump committed the crime of obstruction of justice. That's Jeffrey Tubin. He's the author of the new book, True Crimes and Misdemeanors, The Investigation of Donald Trump. It's a gripping and detailed account of the Mueller investigation and impeachment. Tubin is a staff writer at The New Yorker, the chief legal analyst at CNN, and the author of seven other books about law, politics, and American history. Jeff last joined me for a live show in October 2018, when his new book was already in the works. Today, we catch up on all that's transpired since then, from the shortcomings of the Mueller probe and Bill Barr's web of controversies, to the surprising decisions of Chief Justice John Roberts. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Let's get to your questions. This question comes in an email from Alex Lewin from California. Hi, Preet. A follow-up question to your response on your 7.30 podcast about whether and when the president could pardon Ghislaine Maxwell. You mentioned the galling possibility that he could grant her clemency before she's convicted. Could he have pardoned her before she'd even been indicted? Didn't Gerald Ford pardon Nixon without Nixon's having been charged with a crime? If that's the case, what would stop Trump from issuing blanket pardons, effectively immunity from federal charges, to his inner circle the day before he leaves office? By the way, it has come to my attention that perhaps Ann Milgram and I have been mispronouncing that defendant's name. It was our understanding that it was Ghislaine, but the preponderance of authority suggests to us now that it's Ghislaine. Apologies for the error. Well, Alex, you're exactly right. And it's a depressing thought, and it doesn't seem to comport with our sense of fairness and justice. But as I've said many times on the show... The power of the pardon is written in the Constitution, and it's essentially unfettered. There's almost nothing you can do to stop it or stem it or curb it, and it is not limited to cases where there has been a conviction. In the ordinary course, under the principles and procedures and guidelines of the pardon attorney, in almost all cases, in the normal flow of things, a person is charged, a person is convicted, a person is sentenced, often has served their sentence and has experienced and shown remorse. And then through a process that involves talking to the prosecutors, talking to the defense lawyer, talking to the judge, consulting within the Justice Department, a recommendation is made to the president about whether or not the person should be awarded clemency. There are exceptions to that, obviously. There have been bad pardons, bad commutations. But the general process that I've described is what happens. 
that's just good practice and builds people's confidence and faith in an idea that the process by which someone gets a commutation or a pardon is fair and equal. And it's not just people who are famous. It's not just people who are connected to the president in some way, but everyone has sort of an equal shot depending on the circumstances of their case. But as we've seen with President Trump in case after case after case, none of that procedure has to be followed. None of those recommendations have to even be sought. None of those consultations need to happen. He can pardon anyone for federal crimes whenever he wants, and almost for any reason. Not every reason, but almost for every reason. And you're exactly correct. People sometimes forget this. Richard Nixon was never charged with anything. There was contemplation that he might face criminal charges in the federal system. But as of the time that Gerald Ford took office and decided in a controversial move to pardon the former president, his predecessor, there had not been any charge. And so you can essentially exonerate in advance for charges unknown, unidentified, unspecified, a person in your own discretion. And obviously Donald Trump can do that. And my concern is that if and when he loses the election in the fall and concedes the loss, that we'll have a period during transition where he will... (laughs) with no consequence to him, no electoral consequence, no legal consequence. He will pardon or commute the sentences of all sorts of people. This question comes in a tweet from Nicole Harderink, who writes, At Preet Bharara, when you were an attorney for the Judiciary Committee, did you counsel members on strategy and questions to ask? They need some media training. Hashtag Ask Preet. Well, so I was on the Judiciary Committee for four and a half years, from 2005 to 2009, when I became the U.S. Attorney. And all the members had councils, uh, small Judiciary Committee staff. The chairman at the time was Patrick Leahy. He had a larger staff because he was the chair. And yeah, the staff's responsibility was, among other things, in connection with hearings, to do research about the issue, to do research about the witnesses, to draft questions for the members, follow-up questions for the members. And so we were in a position to counsel members, usually our own member that we worked for directly, but also the whole committee, on strategy and questions to ask. I don't know that they need media training. (laughs) Most of the senators that were around when I was there were pretty savvy about the media, including the member for whom I worked, Chuck Schumer, who was famously smart and savvy about the media. And I'll say as a point of of personal pride, generally speaking, the hearings that went on in the Senate Judiciary Committee were, I thought, pretty intelligent, pretty thoughtful, and pretty effective. I imagine that your question arises in the aftermath of the House Judiciary Committee hearing where Bill Barr testified. And I don't mean any disparagement of the House, but there are a lot more members there They have shorter question rounds because they have so many members. And I thought that last hearing, as you may have heard me discuss, was especially ineffective. I do think there's a difference and send your hate mail to someone else. (laughs) But I do think there is a difference in the quality of hearings conducted by the House versus the Senate. And part of that, as I said, there's a different experience level. There's a difference in the number of people who are there to ask questions and the length of time that you get to ask questions. One of the things that was important for councils on the Judiciary Committee to do was to make sure, to the extent possible, and it was not always possible, that when a hearing was coming up, we were coordinating with other members on our own side. So for example, if there were five hot button issues to discuss in an oversight hearing with the attorney general, for example, that there was some understanding of who would ask which questions, depending on who was in the best position to do it, based on what their pet issues were and what their expertise was and what their staff's expertise was, that was not always possible because individual members have their own agendas and they're super busy and they're not always coordinating themselves between members and they have to rely on their staff. But sometimes you will find in those hearings, including in the Senate, that a member will ask a question, will not get a very good answer, and they will not do a great job of following up. And then you would hope that the next senator or the senator after that would go back to the earlier question, probe further and get a better answer. And there was not a lot of that. Often that's the case because you might not appreciate 
members come and go from hearings. So if a hearing is going two or three or four hours, most members come when their staff summon them at the time that they're going to be called upon to ask their round of questions. And they have not seen often what has come before, and they don't see what comes after. Often this happens in the White House press briefing room also, and you hear criticism about this. Remember, the media will ask a question, will not get a satisfactory answer, but then their time is up and they move on to the next reporter. And often it is said, well, why doesn't that next reporter pick up on the prior question? And that's that's a good question to ask. Why don't they? It's because they're not coordinating. They have their own separate agendas. They have come up with their own question that they're interested in asking, and they come from separate media organizations. So yeah, we tried to provide counsel on strategy and questions based on our research into the issues. But at the end of the day, it's the members who are asking the questions. They have their own way of doing it. And I do think most members in the Senate are thoughtful and smart and want to get to the heart of the matter. The biggest problem to my mind is the filibustering and evasiveness of the witnesses, which sometimes is hard to pierce, and also the lack of coordination in what gets asked. From at Descent 911. That's kind of a depressing handle, Descent 911. At Preet Bharara, have you no influence at the top? <laughs> Hashtag ask Preet. No. I do not have any influence at the top. I don't have any influence in my own house. I'm not sure I have influence at the medium or the bottom either, but I'm working on it. It's time for a short break. Stay tuned. Fox Creative. This is advertiser content from NetSuite. I've never worked in media before, and it's really fun to see deals come through, especially when we signed with MKBHD and the Waveform podcast. That was one of my favorite shows on YouTube, and I've loved that we've partnered with him. I'm Christina Ho Rodriguez, and I am a senior manager of revenue accounting at Vox Media. At Vox, I'm not so siloed in my own revenue accounting department. I'm getting to see the big picture of, of what the company is working on. In my first year, the company went through a really big merger with another media company, and we switched from our old ERP system to NetSuite. We had to integrate NetSuite really fast. It was very user-friendly and right out of the box. Over the last couple months, our team developed a new revenue reporting module that makes our reporting much faster, much more automated. I have a lot of hope with what we can do in the future with NetSuite so that we're able to optimize, make our team a lot more successful, and improve our processes. We're only as good as our best data, and NetSuite allows us to see it all. Discover the power of NetSuite, a leading cloud financial system serving more than 37,000 businesses. Download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com preet. That's netsuite.com preet to get your own KPI checklist. Support for this show comes from DraftKings Sportsbook. The big game is almost here, and DraftKings Sportsbook has you covered with a brand new offer. New customers can bet on the big game and turn 5 bucks into 200 instantly in bonus bets. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code PREET. New customers can bet 5 bucks to get 200 instantly in bonus bets. Only on DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of Super Bowl 58, with code PREET. The crown is yours. 
Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly. On behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort in Kansas, 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash football for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. Legal journalist and author Jeffrey Tubin's new book, True Crimes and Misdemeanors, The Investigation of Donald Trump, is a cinematic account of Robert Mueller's Russia investigation and the impeachment of President Trump. Jeff joins me to explain what he thinks went wrong with the Mueller report, his approach to writing about such a tight-lipped investigation, and how to make sense of the remarkably tense election awaiting us in November. Jeffrey Tubin, welcome to the show. Hi, Pre. Hi. Oh, I guess welcome back to the show. We did a live event about a year and a half ago. We can't do that anymore. Should we add fake crowd noises? <laughs> Just and 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 cardboard cutouts of people watching. Like so it's it, so we'll weird. Like the it. baseball with yeah. like the fake crowd noise. <laughs> Is that weird to you? It, it is weird. I, you know, uh, my son is a, is a big soccer fan, and the soccer noises that they make are even more bizarre because they are so modulated, and it actually feels sort of <laughs> real. It's, I mean, they have so many different soccer sounds. It, it feels like it's a real game, which is the point, I guess. I guess that's good. So congratulations on the new book. It's like your 340th book, right? Eighth, Something like that. but that's, yeah, who's counting? True Crimes and Misdemeanors, The Investigation of Donald Trump. Did, did you ever, if someone told you seven, eight, nine years ago, that you would have a book with Donald Trump on the cover? Would you have believed it? Well, I mean, there's so many things that I would not have believed if I if, if I had been told in advance. You know, to be serious for a minute, I, I actually am not surprised that I wrote another impeachment book. I, I wrote a book about the Clinton-Lewinsky scandal. Well, one of the themes of my career has been how sort of the legal system and sort of legalities have have bled over into politics. So I'm not totally shocked that I was dealing with another impeachment, but the fact that it was Donald Trump and and this set of facts obviously is would have been completely astonishing to me. Was this book harder in some ways to write than the prior books? Easier, the same? Hardest, hardest book of all eight. No, no without without question. Following the easiest of the of the ones. I, I, I did a book about the Patty Hearst case uh, a few years ago, which was the first book that I wrote, which was sort of at the borderline between journalism and history. And, you know, most of the, the, the people weren't used to, everybody was happy to talk to me. It was interesting to them. The, the passage of time had, had sort of sanded some of the anger on the part of some people. This was definitely the hardest, in part because, you know, I originally signed to write a book about the Mueller investigation. That in itself was enormously difficult because the Mueller investigation was so buttoned up in terms of access. But when I started the reporting on the book, I didn't know where the Mueller investigation was going to go. And then, of course, layered on top of it was the impeachment and the congressional investigation of Ukraine, which I had to sort of report on the fly and then, of course, we had the pandemic. So the, the combination of things made it enormously difficult. But actually, 
very rewarding in the sense that I got to tell the full investigation story. I was worried at one point. I mean, you know, all of this seems inevitable in retrospect. I didn't know that the impeachment trial was going to end in February. I thought it might end in April and then I wouldn't you know, make any of my deadlines. So I'm grateful that, you know, not only did I get to tell the whole story of the investigation, but I also got to start to talk about COVID, which I think is relevant. So it's it's a very satisfying project, but it was really a difficult one to to report and to write. So as you say, the, the Mueller team was pretty buttoned up. And I presume that part of the reason it was hard to write this book is that not everyone would talk to you. So how many people did you talk to? Well, I don't want to get into numbers, but it's it's a significant number of the, the Mueller prosecutors. Mueller himself did not talk to me, but but quite a few of the Mueller people did. Virtually all of them after the investigation was over. That was another unnerving aspect of reporting the book is that I had no inside access while the investigation was going. I had to do it all afterwards, which, you know, which created a reporting and writing crunch. But the fact that I did get eventually get them was indispensable to what this book became. I'm going to ask you some questions about trying to get Mueller to talk, which maybe you'll answer, maybe you won't. How hard did you try? Did you send him candy? Did you did you write him love letters, poems? Like it would have been an amazing thing to get him to speak to you. How, you see, how when, hard? I, when I wrote a profile of you in the New Yorker, it was the love letters and the candy that got you to talk to me. <laughs> so and you I follow always me around. do that now. I always do that now. Uh, no, I, it was you know I was I, I was really straightforward with Mueller. You know, I I, I sent him you know repeated emails and. Perhaps more importantly, I had intermediaries who I knew were in regular contact with him and, you know, people who were not, who were relatively favorably disposed or at least neutral towards me, who uh, I was confident was passing along my interest. But I mean, there was not, you know, I mean, one of the things we all know about Robert Mueller is that, you know, he's basically a straightforward person. I mean, there's not a lot of artifice there. And it was quite clear to me that he was going to decide whether to talk to me or not. And, I, you know, my blandishments and candy were not going to make any difference. I was straightforward and insistent, but also recognizing that, you know, he was going to do what he was going to do. What about on the president's side? You talked to a lot of the folks on the president's legal team? Oh, yeah. And, and, and you know, th- that was really sort of fun because like Jay Sekulow, for example, is someone I have known and covered for for many years. Uh, my first book about the Supreme Court, The Nine, has a whole chapter about Jay Sekulow. And a lot of people don't know that, you know, he has a very serious and interesting record as a Supreme Court advocate on freedom of religion and freedom of speech cases. And Jay is also an incredible character with a deeply bizarre and interesting personal story. So I've known Jay for a long time. Um, I wrote a profile of Rudy Giuliani during the investigation. You know, I had met him on and off, but I I had a lot of contact with him during the investigation. And Rudy was, as you know, uh, highly accessible to journalists during the investigation. (laughs) Highly accessible Uh, is one way to put it. Yeah, accessible is one way to put it. And, uh, you know, I was fairly close to an interview with Trump about all this, but then the pandemic made it impossible. I, I, so I did not get to talk to the president himself. I talked to a lot of people around him, but one of the many frustrations that the pandemic caused, and obviously I don't want to overstate you know, its impact on me as opposed to you know, the life and death matters for others, but that it, it just swept away that possibility, the, the, the pandemic. Did Rudy Giuliani ever butt dial you? 
Uh, he did not. He did not. Although, I, I mean, the, by the way, I should make clear that I asked that question because there is a track record of his doing that. With various yeah, and, journalists. and not just once. Yes. Um, so, several. No, he ne- he never butt dialed me. Uh, it, it was interesting. I, you know, I spent a lot of time with him in the cigar bar at the top of six 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 Fifth Avenue, which is sort of like his headquarters now. And to see him manipulating his phone, he he does have. You know, like a lot of people of that generation, they're still not fully conversant with the with the cell phone technology. And, and it, it didn't surprise me that of all people, he was the one who had a little trouble <laughs> with it. You talked to John Dowd? Uh, off and on. John Dowd is a real character, too. John Dowd, mostly he would yell at me. Uh, that was the, <laughs> that was what the the interviews consisted of. Um, John, John is an interesting character. Um, we, we, again, you know, one of the advantages, I suppose, of doing this for a long time is that, you know, you tend to cross paths with the same people over and over again. I had a brief dealing, actually, no, in the Eastern District of New York, where I used to be an assistant U.S. attorney, that was where it, the, the Pete Rose investigation of it was gambling on baseball. And Dowd did, did the investigation for Major League Baseball of Rose, and it's something he's very still involved with and proud of, understandably. And and we had talked about that. But he's somewhat unusual, particularly in the Washington, New York axis of lawyers. He's a very serious political conservative. I mean, most most lawyers, I think you'd agree, in New York, just like most people in New York and Washington, D.C. are Democrats. He's, he's a real conservative. And so he has a lot of complaints about the mainstream media, of which I am a part. And so my conversations with him often consisted of him yelling at me, but but also providing interesting information in the course of that. What about some of the other people? I want to talk a little bit more about the personnel, and then we'll get to some of the critiques that you've made about the Mueller investigation and, and how it turned out. On the special counsel's team, there's a gentleman by the name of Andrew Weissman, who was a guest of the Stay Tuned podcast in the last week or two, where he denied that he was a pit bull. I don't really think of myself as a pit bull. But I have to say one thing that's useful about that is it's really kind of useful for defense counsel and witnesses to think you are a pit bull, even if you're not, because it's useful for them to think that, you know, you're going to be sort of, you know, over the top and aggressive and, and, uh, you know, completely on top of of, um, the facts. Is he a a pit bull? He's a total pit bull. And, 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 and I say this uh, with admiration. Andrew and I were colleagues in the Eastern District of New York. Um, we were not close friends or anything, but we certainly knew each other. And one of the things about being an assistant U.S. attorney that I think is actually a good thing is that we are sort of interchangeable. That you know, some of us are better than better at the job than each other, but but by and large, there is. I think among federal prosecutors, sort of a, a basic level of competence and. Andrew was always different. Andrew was a high-profile assistant U.S. attorney, which is not something that's all that common. And he was hated by the defense bar in a way that most AUSAs are not. I mean, obviously, defense lawyers have complaints about individual issues, but, but Andrew had this ability to rub people the wrong way. And I write about this in the book. There was this joke that went around the New York criminal defense bar. Andrew was named one of the lawyers on the Enron investigation. He, he, he was you know, one of the special prosecutors in that case. And he was named shortly after one of, in, early in the investigation, one of the executives at Enron committed suicide. 
And the word around all the defense lawyers in New York was, they're now going to be more suicides because Andrew was so difficult and so aggressive uh, as a prosecutor. And, you know, I think by and large, that's not a bad thing. But there is something about Andrew that rubs people the wrong way. And, you know, he he is he's a tough, tough prosecutor. And that that had effects in the Mueller investigation. How so? Put aside adversaries for a moment. Was he a good fit within the team? I think he was, but he was sort of in the, the more aggressive camp in the team. Uh, just, you know, he he was uh, he was responsible for the Manafort investigation, that he was the team leader in the Manafort investigation. If you recall, there were two there were two Manafort indictments, one in the uh, Eastern District of Virginia and one in Washington, uh, D.C. He he was going to try the Washington case, but that case played out. But I but I think, you know, one thing that's important to say about Andrew is that there had been a Manafort investigation percolating around the Justice Department for years relating to his activities in Ukraine in terms of uh, failure to register, bank fraud, tax fraud. And uh, Preet, as you know, it is sometimes the case that investigations kind of linger and wither and and just they don't get resolved. And Andrew, you know, who is nothing if not incredibly energetic and industrious, within weeks of getting uh, on the Mueller team, had pulled together the Manafort investigation and got a search warrant for, for Manafort's uh, home in, in Alexandria, and then later an indictment. And, you know, that rubbed some people in the main justice the wrong way because they're like, hey, that's our investigation. But it was characteristic of Andrew, and I think characteristic of his skill, that he got that investigation back on track in a matter of weeks uh, after it had been lingering for, for literally for years. By your count, how many angry Democrats run the Mueller team? That's, that's the phrase that Trump used to use to describe that team. These people have the biggest conflicts of interest I've ever seen. The Democrats, in all fairness, Bob Mueller worked for Obama for eight years. There are many reasons to make fun and criticize and mock and impeach Donald Trump. But the fact that there were, I, I, it's in the book, it's either 13 or 18 of the prosecutors had given to Democrats. That's not nothing. And that's not, uh, I mean, th- this is a problem with special counsel, independent counsel investigations. You know, one of the great values, as you know better than I you know, uh, of the U.S. Attorney's Office is that you have sort of a broad range of crimes to investigate and you have limited resources and the people by and large, are apolitical in their orientation because they tend to, the the job of assistant U.S. attorney, unlike U.S. attorney, is a career job. It's not a job that changes when when the, the presidency changes. Special counsel investigations, they attract people who are interested in investigating that particular president. When I was, I was a prosecutor in the Walsh investigation of Iran Contra. It was almost all Democrats. I wrote about and wrote a book about the Starr investigation, including some of the very conservative, very outspoken people who were part of that staff. It is true that Mueller attracted lots of people who had given money 
to uh, Democrats. Now, they it's were- sort of a self-selecting group. It's, it's, it's self-selecting in ways that U.S. attorney's offices are not self-selecting. So what do you do about that? So I guess it's, it's, not, it's not a crazy observation, and I, I agree with that, but then people will point out that when you're trying to staff an office like that, it's actually improper to make inquiries about political giving and political affiliation. So how do you, how do you, how do you thread that needle? It's a very hard problem. And, and I don't, you know, I don't have a particular solution. As you point out, you're not allowed to ask uh, those sorts of questions, uh, who you voted for, who you, who you gave money to. You know, the, the fact is when you are doing an investigation in, in New York, most lawyers, like most people are, are Democrats. Um, that's just the nature of the jurisdiction. And here's something that I think you'll appreciate since you were a, a career prosecutor at one point. The fact that they were all career prosecutors, or virtually all, was more important than the fact that they were Democratic donors. That there are certain cultural norms, certain ways of behaving that almost to a fault the Mueller investigation displayed that actually were more important in how they conducted themselves than the fact that they gave money to uh, Hillary Clinton on occasion. I want to ask you about Rod Rosenstein and his role in all this, as you write about. But in introducing that subject, I want to talk about the the opening few pages of your book. I don't know if it's the preface or the introduction, which it's a small story, but it sticks with me because it goes to a problem that Donald Trump has, and that is a pathological inability to not lie, <laughs> pathological inability to tell the truth. And it's this simple story about which the president just lies. And it's the occasion of May 16th, 2017, when Bob Mueller goes to the Oval Office to meet with the president and Rod Rosenstein, the deputy attorney general, is present. And the only reason why Bob Mueller is there, and it's on the eve of his being appointed the special counsel, he's there at Rod Rosenstein's request, I believe, to provide some advice about who the next FBI director should be. It had been a few days since Jim Comey had been fired. Bob Mueller had been the FBI director for 10 years, then another two years, so 12 years total. And the reason he was there was to give some counsel. He couldn't have asked for his old job back because it was contrary to law. And yet the President of the United States, again and again and again, said of Bob Mueller, he came to beg for his old job back. And one of the reasons the president said that over and over again was to suggest that Bob Mueller had a conflict and so couldn't have served properly as the special counsel if hours earlier he was on his knees begging like a dog, as the Trump sometimes says about people, for his old job back. Robert Mueller should have never been chosen because he wanted the FBI job and he didn't get it. And the next day he was picked as special counsel. So you tell somebody, I'm sorry, you can't have the job. So the president lies. A, I want to know what you think about that. And B, I want to know if you think that Rod Rosenstein should have been yelling and hollering about those lies while he remained a member of the Justice Department because he was present and knew the truth. Uh, you know, as, as you point out, the, the, the opening scene to me was the, sort of this irresistible tableau of the two protagonists, their one and only face-to-face -face meeting. You know, and, and also- It's like the they, movie, it's like the movie Heat. It, 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 it's, it's when Pacino and, uh, Pacino De, Niro and De Niro face off, yes. I don't know how to do anything else. Neither do I. I don't much want to either. Neither do I. 
And it was an opportunity for me to contrast their personalities and backgrounds and also to point out some of the similarities between the two of them. You know, they, they're almost exactly the same age. Mueller is two years older than Trump. They both were raised in considerable wealth on the East Coast. Trump in the uh, Trump in, in New York City, uh, Mueller on the main line of Philadelphia. And they both went to Ivy League schools, Princeton for Mueller, Penn for, for Trump. But their lives could not have differed and their personalities and values could not have differed more. I mean, here you have someone who's devoted his entire life, with very few exceptions when he was in the private sector, to, to public service. Someone you know, who is, you know, reticent about his, his himself and his personality, someone who is, you know, I think pathologically honest in how he engages the world with Trump, who is someone who has done nothing except, you know, do things for his own private gain. And as you point out, you know, just lies compulsively. So they, they are similar in few, in, in some ways and different in, in many others. At that meeting, as you point out, you know, th- there is absolutely no dispute about why Mueller was there. And yet, as I point out in the book, Trump lied about it. Trump lied about it constantly. I, I think you point out Rod Rosenstein's role, and-, and-, and I find Rosenstein sort of a blandly fascinating character. Um, you know, Bland- he- blandly fascinating. You know, but, but I mean, if you know, one of the things I-, I have a description of-, of Rosenstein in the book where, you know, he almost is, is, kind of an invisible person. You know, he's not tall. He's not short. He's not handsome. He's not ugly. He's he he looks like a Washington everyman. You know, he, he wears the button down blue Oxford shirts. He wears the red tie, the uniform of Washington. But one of the things you realize about Rod Rosenstein is he is a bureaucratic survivor. As you know better, again, better than most, when the presidency changes from particularly from one party to another one thing that happens is that the new president gets to name the new us attorneys but rod rosenstein was the only us attorney in the united states named by george w bush whom barack obama kept in office also pat, pat fitzgerald perhaps but but very briefly yeah. i think i mean it, rosenstein stayed i think for the whole tenure of of obama true and then, and then the third, and then the third president, and, and well, he got promoted to be deputy attorney general by by Trump. But Rosenstein is someone who is, I think, uh, an ethical and decent person who was thrust into extraordinary circumstances, and he had to make compromises, and he made compromises, and the main compromise he made was continuing to work for Donald Trump, even though Trump was obviously uh, lying about many things, corrupt in many respects. There's one incident that, that I talk about in the book that I think was revealing. And again, as, as, as a U.S. attorney, you will certainly appreciate this. You know, w- one of the great thing access I had was to this magnificent website called the Trump Twitter Archive. And, you know, Trump tweets so much and they sort of pass in such a blur. It's easy to forget how outrageous and ridiculous many of them are. But but because of this archive, I was able to sort of look through all the tweets in real time. And there was one tweet in the in early or late 2018, right before the midterm elections about two Republican congressmen, Collins from New York 
and uh, I forgot the guy's name in Los Angeles, uh, the, or uh, San Diego. And, and the J- Department of Justice had brought indictments against both of them. And Trump tweeted, you know, nice job, Jeff Sessions, you know, losing us two safe seats because of, uh, you know, your indictments. I remember that tweet very well. I've written about I it. I think we talked. To, I, yeah. I think it's in your yeah. book. And, and, and I think we've talked about it. And it was such an egregious abuse of what the Justice Department is supposed to be and the values the Justice Department is supposed to hold. And Rosenstein, you know, who understands those values, actually assembled his staff and said, look, this is not who we are. And, you know, ignore ignore that tweet. But, you know, that was his boss. And he did do some things for Trump. And, and, and I think that took moral and legal and ethical compromises. And that's why I find Rosenstein a particularly interesting figure, because he's not all one way. He also protected Robert Mueller from getting fired. He also named Robert Mueller who was a very good choice. Yeah, he also didn't stand up to his, to the president in ways that some people wanted. He also didn't recuse himself. You know, he he was a guest on the Words Matter podcast that is now part of the CAFE family, our family, hosted by Katie Barlow and, and Joe Lockhart. And he was asked about the recusal. I mean, maybe not that many people care about it because Rod Rosenstein had a role in, in some fashion of the firing of Jim Comey. He wrote that memo. He was a fact witness, as we say. Did you consider recusing yourself? And if you didn't, why didn't you? Well, I certainly considered it in the sense that uh, I talked with the ethics expert on my staff about whether recusal was warranted, and the determination was that it was not. Now, in theory, you can always recuse as a discretionary matter. You can decide that uh, you don't want to deal with the issue, and so you you can step out. But I, I felt that that would be irresponsible on my part, no matter who wound up in the line of fire for this. It was going to be very unpleasant. And so I thought it would be irresponsible of me to to step out unless there were a legal justification for me to do it. So, you know, once the uh, I, I discussed with the ethics expert and determined that there was no uh, requirement for recusal, I did not recuse. And you and I would talk about this in the hallways of CNN. How come that guy is not recusing himself? How come he's not being asked to recuse himself? Because ordinarily, Democratic senators would have lost their minds. And in part, our theory, I think, was, at least my theory was, you know, they thought he was going to protect Mueller. And so they were allowed, they, they permitted him some latitude. What do you think? Totally agree. Totally agree. Under different circumstances, in a different political environment, someone who was that close to the facts of the case, someone who was interviewed in the investigation by, by Mueller's staff, would certainly have been expected to recuse himself. But Democrats figured, I think correctly, that we could do a lot worse than Rod Rosenstein. And, and, and I think, you know, it does speak to Rosenstein's integrity that he did allow Mueller to pursue his investigation and include and expand his investigation in certain ways. But as we have discussed, I always thought that the, the recusal issue was a serious one. And, you know, like a lot of things, it just sort of got swallowed up by time. So the overall Mueller investigation You've had some critical things to say about it. Look, it it kind of, I don't know what verb you want to use, it kind of it kind of fizzled out. And I want to I want to quote something from your book and then ask you to talk about it. And this relates to that weird non-conclusion in the final Mueller report. And you said, quote, 
Nothing in Mueller's mandate required him to reach such a baffling and inconclusive conclusion about the most important issue before him. He was a prosecutor. A prosecutor's job is to determine whether the evidence is sufficient to bring cases. In this unique situation, the Office of Legal Counsel opinion prohibited Mueller from actually bringing a case. But, you write, Mueller gave Trump an unnecessary second benefit from the OLC opinion. The first benefit was not prosecuting him. That was mandatory. But the second benefit was not even saying whether the evidence supported a prosecution. That simply was a gift to Trump. In fairness to Mueller, he writes in the report, and otherwise I think has testified, that the reason he didn't make a a blanket statement about whether or not the president had committed a crime, putting aside whether or not he was prosecutable, was it would be unfair because since he couldn't be charged, he couldn't have his day in court to clear his name. What do you make of that defense? I I, I don't buy it. And I thought it was you know, indicative of, you know, this is why why I like being a journalist is because things are so often the opposite of what they appear. Mueller has been criticized endlessly by Trump and Trump's allies for his excessive zeal. But the problem with the investigation was insufficient zeal, that he tied himself in knots to figure out a way not to say what his report led, I think, any reasonable reader to conclude, which was that Trump committed the crime of obstruction of justice. And, you know, yes, it is true that the OLC opinion said Mueller couldn't prosecute him. And I happen to think the OLC opinion is correct. I I don't think under our constitutional system that a sitting president can or should be indicted. But that doesn't mean that a prosecutor can't tell the truth about what he saw. And again, What makes this poignant and interesting is that Mueller did this incredibly skillful, accurate, in-depth investigation of the obstruction of justice case, particularly when it comes to the firing of Comey, the instruction to Comey to go easy on Michael Flynn, uh, Trump's instruction to uh, Don McGahn, the White House counsel, to get Mueller fired, then his instruction to McGahn to lie about that uh, exchange. All of that is, to me, obstruction of justice on a scale way bigger than Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky, way bigger than Richard Nixon and the Watergate cover-up. But because he tied himself in knots about his inability to say what the evidence directed him to say, you know, it it, it led to this baffling sort of non, uh, you know, not innocent but not guilty that I think was just he didn't do the job that he should have done. But why is that? So sometimes motivations are important. You're not saying, I don't think, that he pulled punches and he didn't do the job that you think he should have done because he was trying to protect the president. He he was behaving, I think, in a way he thought was limited and honorable. Is that fair? Totally. Absolutely. I, I think he, he, you know, one of the things about Mueller is, you know, he has spent his entire career starting in the Marines, which is a major, major influence on him, in hierarchical organizations where there is uh, deference paid to authority, even if you, the subordinate, might not agree with the the superior's superior's orders. And you saw that throughout the Mueller investigation um, in the the refusal to issue a subpoena, in in, in this bizarre non-conclusion to the report, in his failure to take on Bill Barr, who was distorting his work right and left. Uh, you know, Mueller uh, believes in the chain of command. And he got it in his head, as you know, with 
the assistance of his uh, of his staff that to go farther than simply summarizing the evidence and drawing what I thought was the obvious conclusion from the evidence was going too far and was somehow unfair to Trump uh, because Trump couldn't have his day in court. I thought that was simply uh, not necessary. But I, I don't think it was any kind of corrupt or bad motives on the part of Mueller. I think it was just a mistake born out of his character and history. So if Mueller was doing it because he thought it was the honorable thing to do, would it have been better for him to do something that he thought was not honorable? Or is it your view that he misperceived what the right and honorable thing to do would be, that his own view of it was naive? Yes, his own view of it was was naive. One consequence, as a journalist, I had a kind of perverse admiration for the total absence of leaks from the uh, uh, the Mueller operation while the investigation was pending. I mean, they did not engage with the press at all. I mean, there was just no give and take a- a- at all. And that it was admirable in a way, but I think it also led to a kind of uh, moral vanity on the part of the the Mueller office that, that so we're, we're, we're like better than these people who, you know, are, are in the political scrum every day, including the journalists. And I think it, it led them to a kind of tunnel vision that they were not as engaged in the real world as they should have been. Um, again, I don't think that is something that comes out of bad motives, but it comes at, at some cost. And, and I think the, the bizarre and nearly incomprehensible conclusion of the Mueller report on the question of obstruction of justice was the most glaring illustration of that. Was there a difference of opinion within the team? Did some people want there to be a flat statement that this conduct was, in fact, obstruction and, and violated the law? I, you know, to, to, to be honest... I don't know that for a fact. There, there's certainly, you know, An- Andrew Weissman and, and his colleague, Jeannie Ray, who was the head of the Russia investigation, were certainly more aggressive in general than Jim Quarles and Andrew Goldstein, your former colleague in the, in the Southern District, who did the White House investigation. I mean, that, that was a temperamental difference between, between the two. But look, you know, this was a Mueller decision. It wasn't a staff decision. And Uh, I think he was the person who called the shots there. How would the world have been different if everything else the same, you know, meticulous examination of the president's conduct and the conduct of people around him and all those 10 or 11 incidents of potential obstruction laid out in the report as they are, but Mueller did what you think maybe would have been better and had a paragraph where he flatly states, our conclusion is this violates law and but for the OLC opinion, the president would be chargeable. And he made a flat statement about it. What would be different? Maybe nothing. I, I mean, I, I don't want to over. I mean, look, you know, we, we haven't talked about impeachment yet. You know, one, one of the touchstones of the Trump era in um, American politics is that the Republican Party has become like a cult. There was no serious evaluation of the evidence against Trump in the impeachment proceeding re- regarding Ukraine. And I, I do believe that if, if Mueller had been more straightforward about obstruction of justice, impeachment might well have hit Congress uh, before the Ukraine matter happened. But would Trump have been forced from office? 
would he have been, you know, w- would there have been two thirds votes for him in the Senate? Uh, I mean, to, to remove him in the Senate, I doubt it. I doubt it. But, you know, you never know. And that doesn't mean Mueller shouldn't have done the right thing. He should have done the right thing. Well, should Mueller have closed up shop as early as he did? It seems like every other thing has been undone by Bill Barr, whether you're talking about Roger Stone or you're talking about Michael Flynn. That wouldn't have been possible if Mueller kept his shop open, right? Not necessarily. I mean, you know, Robert Mueller was a subordinate. Robert Mueller was a, you know, he wasn't an independent counsel. He was a special counsel. But it would not have been as frictionless. There would have had to be process. There would have had to be disclosure if Barr was going to overrule Mueller on various things, right? You know what? Uh, Barr was going to do what Barr was going to do. I mean, I, I, you know, one of the, the just shocking, shocking things about the last year has been the craven political uh, behavior of, of Barr. Uh, I don't really believe that had Mueller stayed in office, Barr would not have tried to reduce Roger Stone's sentence, would not have tried to undo Michael Flynn's guilty plea, and would not have ordered the Connecticut U.S. attorney, John Durham, to do a basically a hatchet job on the on the origins of the investigation. So, I mean, I, I, I don't think, you know, to me, the, the question about what Mueller should have done goes to the beginning of the investigation, not the end. By that, I mean, and this is a, a closer question, but, you know, should he have investigated Trump's finances? You know, why has Donald Trump had this incredible solicitude for Vladimir Putin? Why has he failed to confront Russia over and over again? Is there something in his financial history other than the abortive attempt uh, to build a, a, a Trump Tower in Moscow in 2015, which Mueller did investigate, is there something more there? Uh, Mueller decided not to investigate that. I'm not sure every prosecutor would have made the same decision, but at least I think it's a defensible decision. That, to me, is a much bigger, a much more important question than why he didn't extend the investigation longer. I think he was done. I really think he was done. You write books that often get made into TV shows and movies. Can someone make a movie out of this, given that neither investigation really went anywhere? They're trying already. Um, I'm pleased to say that. Uh, <laughs> have you it, sold the movie rights? I Mr. certainly Tubin? have. I, I, I certainly have, and uh, and there are people actively at work trying to do it. But it's not easy. One way to approach it is, you know, Robert Mueller was like a man out of time. I mean, you know, as I say in the book, you know, the, it's easy and not entirely wrong to see the conflict between Mueller and Trump as good versus evil. But the better analogy is old versus new. Mueller just had old-fashioned ideas about how people conduct themselves, how prosecutors conduct themselves, how the government should work. And he came up against people like Donald Trump, like William Barr, who were willing to just violate every norm and perhaps law under the sun. And I think Mueller was not prepared to deal with that intellectually, emotionally, politically. And that's an interesting piece of dramatic tension. Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. 
Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. I don't know if this was your hypothetical, but it may be one that we talked about. Someone once suggested, you know, imagine if you flipped the two roles that Bob Mueller was the FBI director in 2016. He wouldn't have given that press conference about Hillary Clinton, probably wouldn't have sent that letter on the eve of the election. He would have kept his mouth shut. And also imagine Jim Comey, you know, someone without personality as the special counsel probably would have been more likely to do what you say should have been done, which is make flat statements about criminality, probably also would have been less tight-lipped and engaged in more strong defenses of their office and their office's work. Do you think the world would be different if the personalities of those two roles were switched? I love you, Preet. That's a nuts question. Uh, <laughs> what the hell do I know? I don't know. It's like, well, if the whole thing took place in Uruguay <laughs> instead of the United States, would it be different? Yes, it would be different. All right. All right. I thought it was I thought it was interesting thought question. It is an interesting. <laughs> hey, look, I've been I, I've been home detained for too long. I'm going too crazy. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm conjuring a, up these. That's a, that's an okay thing. I'm uh, conjuring up these crazy things. Yeah. Let's let's. I want to talk about impeachment a little bit. And the question I have for you is: When you research the book, I, I imagine you talk to people in the Congress. Were people on the Republican side, at least with you on background or off the record, more willing to concede that whether or not it was something that he should be convicted for in the Senate? that the conduct of Donald Trump in connection with Ukraine was just terrible and awful? Or did they not concede that? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Well, I, let, let, me, let me put it this way. In the House of Representatives, absolutely not. The uh, degree to which the House Republicans have become a Trump cult cannot be overstated. I mean, you know, there are basically no more moderate Republicans left in the entire United States House of Representatives. And you would talk to them about this and you would get, you know, the procession of daily talking points, whether it was, you know, uh, oh, Trump, you know, had other interests in Ukraine. He wasn't just interested in getting uh, dirt on Joe Biden or you know, what you heard in the, in the trial that he was the commander in chief and the president, he's allowed to have these conversations in the Senate. It was somewhat different in the sense that they would recognize, well, well, you know, that he probably shouldn't have phrased the call that way, but the House should have done a better investigation. This is just a political vendetta against Trump. The great moment of the Nixon impeachment was the seven Republicans on the House Judiciary Committee who voted for uh, the articles of impeachment against Nixon. Dedicated, serious conservatives who said, this is just not acceptable behavior in the president. You saw almost none of that, no, almost no crossover in the Nixon, uh, in the Clinton impeachment, and really close to zero. I mean, just Mitt Romney in the Senate and and really no one in the House of Representatives. And I think it's it's indicative of where our politics are now, that the polarization and the hostility between the political parties is so great that what to me was 
flagrant misconduct on the part of Trump and and in many respects worse with regard to Ukraine than with regard to Russia, it was very easy for them to just blow it off. You write about some of the players in impeachment, obviously, in the book. Tell folks who you thought comported themselves well and who did not. I thought Adam Schiff did a spectacular job. I mean, I, you know, Adam Schiff has been in Congress since 2000 and was really a seriously obscure member of Congress until this happened. You know, he was the kind of person Nancy Pelosi could ask to, to handle the impeachment of a uh, federal judge, um, a, a job that was a tremendous amount of work, led to no campaign contributions, no media attention. But, you know, something he did to shift it because he was a former prosecutor and he thought it was the right thing to do. But, you know, someone who, you know, rose to levels of eloquence that, frankly, very unusual in Washington, uh, I thought was was really pretty remarkable. I, I, and, and I thought, you know, someone who really zeroed in on the true nature of the misbehavior here very early, both stories, both uh, the Russia story and the Ukraine story, and I think comported himself with great dignity, notwithstanding the fact that he was dealing with horrendous dental problems during the Senate trial, which is something I uh, spell out in the in the book, uh, which any of us who have had dental problems know it's hard to concentrate on anything else. As for other people who handle themselves particularly uh, well, one of the stories that in the, in the book that I tell that I think is a very revealing and interesting one is the five new members of Congress, military veterans, all who took Democrat, who took Republican seats, several in Trump districts after the Ukraine story broke, you know, they had been very skeptical about impeachment, but they wrote an op-ed piece in the Washington Post. And I talk about these five members of, uh, of Congress and how they came to believe at considerable political risk to themselves that Trump had to be impeached. Uh, I thought they uh, were really models of what we wanted in uh, public servants. I was impressed. Here's sort of an ultimate question. It's my assessment, and I have biases like everyone does, that the lawyers on the special counsel's team and Adam Schiff in the House, that the lawyers arrayed against the president, I thought had better skill and craft, trying not to be ideological or political, but better skill and craft than a lot of the lawyers on the president's side, which included no small number of what I would call blowhards. I also happen to believe that the president engaged in very bad conduct in, in both things that we've been talking about. So given that equation, if you'll accept it for a moment, how did the president get away with everything? Because he owns the Republican Party. I, I mean, I, I think the evidence was overwhelming against him and largely irrelevant. The Republicans were just not interested in hearing the evidence against Trump. And uh, the, the skill of the lawyers, while interesting to those of us, you know, in the trade, I think was was a really minor factor in, in, in the outcome. I don't, I don't think these senators, by and large, were listening. They didn't uh, like the case. Sometimes they, you get they, juries. Yeah. They, it doesn't they, matter how good the lawyer. They don't like the case. Why would you bring the case? Yeah. And, and, and that's what happened here. And, and and I think it's really as simple as that. I don't think the evidence in the trial mattered to 51 of the 53 Republicans in the Senate. You know, maybe Susan Collins and maybe Lisa Murkowski, you know, had some second thoughts. Mitt Romney obviously took the evidence very seriously, but the rest of them, 
they, they, they weren't going to pick a fight with Donald Trump when it was quite clear they were never going to be 67 votes anyway. And, you know, I think that's that's the beginning and end of the story. Have you seen a more bizarre case with all its twists and turns and still not concluded than the case against Michael Flynn? It's surreal. I mean, you've been around, you've been around the criminal I've justice system. I've never seen anything like for, it. And the federal criminal justice the idea that the attorney general of the United States would direct the Justice Department move to overturn a criminal conviction where the guy has pled guilty? When has that ever happened? When has that ever happened? And, and you know, when he moves to, with, to lower the sentence where the Justice Department has already said the sentence should be X and he overrules the, the, the trial team. I thought when Barr testified, he was asked a very good question. Well, what other cases have you, have you asked to have overturned? What other cases have you asked to have the sentence reduced? And the answer, of course, is none. This was solely a, you know, a mission on behalf of the president. And, he, you know, and, and you, you know, you much more prominent, much more extensive career in the Justice Department than I did. But I was in the Justice Department. And, you know, there are certain values there. There are, you know, certain norms of behavior that people take a lot of pride in. Yes, everybody knows the attorney general is a member of the cabinet. Everybody knows that U.S. attorneys are appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate and are, are political appointees. But the culture of the place is that, you know, we don't swing back and forth especially when it comes to criminal prosecution, depending on who's in, you know, which party is in power. And this was such a grotesque abuse, which, as you say, is continuing. And then it gets more bizarre because the district judge in the case decides he's not going to just go ahead and quickly dismiss the matter, even though the government's asking for it. He hired a lawyer, John Gleason, who was, who was a judge for a long time in the Eastern District. And then it goes to the D.C. Circuit and they say terrible things about the district court judge. Then he asks for the entire court in an en banc proceeding to consider it. They're doing that, I think, next week. Where do you think this ends up? I, I, w- what I think is going to happen is the full D.C. Circuit, which is a seven to four Democratic majority, will not dismiss the case. They will send the case back to Judge Sullivan and he will he will hold a hearing. And I think ultimately he will dismiss the case, but he will do it on his terms. Not after some inquiry. Exactly. And, you know, I mean, again, not to get too far into the weeds, but, you know, this rule about dismissing cases, it says with leave of the court, you, you can only dismiss a case, government, with leave of the court. And I think that means with leave of the court. That means the judge has to have some role in the process. And the Justice Department position here is has been that those words don't mean anything. Can I ask you a question that, that I get asked a lot? And I'm going to ask a smarter guy than me. What happens, and I think this is the major concern that people have about the political state of the country, putting aside the pandemic, although they're not unrelated, Donald Trump doesn't accept the election results. And he's like, I'm not going. What happens, Jeff Tubin? Well, that's a, I mean, you know, obviously that's a question that, that we're all thinking about a great deal. Not to worm, worm my way out of, out of answering, I think most of it depends on, you know, what the state of the vote is in each, in, in each state. If there is 350 electoral votes for, for Biden that seem clear, then I just think even this Republican Party says you have to go. But if 
you know, we're talking about a few states here and there, a Florida type situation like in 2000. I think they fight it all the way. I think they fight. And, and I think Trump has a very good chance because, you know, I also wrote a book about the recount in 2000. If this case goes to the House of Representatives, if the Electoral College fails to resolve the case, it goes to the House of Representatives and each state votes as a delegation. There are, it's, it's an election with 50 votes. And there are more states controlled by Republicans than Democrats in the House of Representatives, even though there are more overall Democrats. You know, I, I think they're aware of that. So I, I think there is considerable possibility for really substantial ugliness unless Biden's victory is just too substantial to allow that. What would be the circumstances in which the decision would be made by the Supreme Court? Well, the decision in Bush v. Gore was whether to allow a recount to continue in the state of Florida. So it was very specific about one state and one state's vote counting process. It wasn't about, now, because that state had the dispositive number of electoral votes, it it effectively decided the election, but- You could have a replay of that, could you not? You could have two or three battles. Yeah, you could have three states. Absolutely. Florida, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, you know, or Ohio. And, And the thing that I find particularly chilling, I just wrote something about this in The New Yorker, is that because- there are so many mail-in ballots. You know, Trump doesn't like mail-in ballots, but there are going to be a lot of mail-in ballots. The states are not prepared or not even allowed in some circumstances to count them before election day. So the vote count is going to extend past November 3rd. And, you know, there's a, there's a primary in New York that's unresolved because of the, the length it's taken, you know, from a June 23rd primary. That's, to me, the, the, the real peril is what happens during that period after November 3rd when they're still counting absentee votes and there's no resolution. That, to me, is a very dangerous period. So let's end talking about the court since we segue to that. One of the services you provide, the public, is breaking down complicated Supreme Court rulings and decisions. Explain for people who don't know what to think where John Roberts is on the court and what it means that he joined the liberals in a couple of significant cases at the end of the last term. How should people think about John Roberts? What do you think about him? What his trajectory is? Has he changed? Is he changing things? Or just by nature of the dynamics in those particular cases, it looks that way, but he has stayed true to himself. I think Roberts has changed. I really do. I mean, and, and you know, we, we are dealing now with a question about what's going on in John Roberts' head. And so I want to make clear that I am working from a base of knowledge, but I don't have access to the inside of his head. So this is, it's informed conjecture, but it's conjecture. I think Roberts sees that Trump has just pushed too hard and pushed too far and is too lawless. Uh, When you look at his decisions in uh, the census case where he said that the administration had acted improperly in trying to get a citizenship question on the census, when you look at his decision in the DACA case where he said the administration had acted precipitously in revoking the consideration for the dreamers that Obama has, and particularly when you look at his decision in the abortion case where he voted to uh, overturn the restrictive abortion laws in Louisiana. You know, yes, you can point to things in Robert's past that suggest those results. But 
I think something different is going on with Roberts. There is a certain kind of establishment Republican. It's a small group. Uh, You see it in in sort of an extreme form in the Lincoln Project, who are doing all these devastating ads about Trump. These Republicans who come out of a very different tradition than Trump does, who are just kind of appalled by the guy. I think Roberts shows signs of, of, of at least sympathy for him. Now, I don't want to overstate it. John Roberts is still a conservative. He's still going to vote with uh, Alito, Thomas, Kavanaugh, and uh, Gorsuch most of the time. But he is susceptible to the arguments that Trump is just out of control and the Republican Party is out of control much more than I thought he was. And it has very real significance. And what do you think Kavanaugh is on that spectrum? Well, I, I think Kavanaugh has conflicting impulses at, at, at this point. I think, you know, he, he is- kinda, cons- He kind of owes the guy. Well, he owes Trump, but he doesn't want to be seen as a political hack. And I, I think he is someone who I would have said, uh, well, sort of John Roberts pre this year, In Kavanaugh's first year on the court, he voted with Roberts almost all the time. He was those two were aligned in all. all. And and I think that's the kind of conservative Kavanaugh aspires to be. But I think he's much more of a movement conservative uh, in the way that Gorsuch clearly is. So I think he is part. I mean, and and all these big cases, he parted ways with Roberts. And, And I think that's significant. You've written about the court for a long time. And have you written about and specifically, you've written about the way in which Thomas took his seat and that, at least in the early years, and maybe even still, that his outlook on the court was influenced by the difficulty of his confirmation and the anger that he felt about the way his confirmation process went. So fast forward you know, a few decades, and you have the same with Kavanaugh. Based on what you just said, I wonder if you think that Kavanaugh will be affected by the anger he must feel about his right or wrong, the anger he must feel about his confirmation and the anger that he displayed um, quite sharply at the confirmation hearing. This whole two-week effort has been a calculated and orchestrated political hit fueled with apparent pent-up anger about President Trump and the 2016 election, fear that has been unfairly stoked about my judicial record, revenge on behalf of the Clintons, and millions of dollars in money from outside left-wing opposition groups. Or is he going to let that go and try over time to be something like John Roberts? I think it's similar to Thomas, but different in uh, some respects. Thomas was just enraged and determined to screw his adversaries. I mean, I I, I don't think it's it's any more simple than that. I think Thomas was you know, just hates liberals and Democrats with an abiding passion. And every single day on the Supreme Court, he is determined to screw them in every possible way. And and, and that really hasn't changed. Kavanaugh's a little different. I, I think Kavanaugh is very angry about how he was treated. I think he's upset that, you know, he cannot appear in public because he was someone who liked appearing in public, liked going to universities, liked doing moot courts. Um, He does not like the fact that he's essentially a prisoner of the Supreme Court because there'll be protests wherever he goes. But he's also someone who was really kind of a Washington insider and wants to be liked and wants to be seen as something than other than a political hack. 
uh, in a way that Thomas doesn't care about that at all. So I, I think that th- those might pull him in slightly different directions, but his vote is still, Kavanaugh's vote is still a very predictable one in, in the vast majority of cases. I believe you wrote about the relationship between Obama and Roberts. I think you described them as near-perfect antagonists. How would you describe Trump-Roberts? Well, the thing about uh, Roberts and Obama is that, you know, they had so much in common. I mean, you know, they were, it's not just that they both went to Harvard Law School, but they were both, you know, part of the Harvard Law Review, you know, sort of scholarly approach to law. People who uh, spoke, they both re- they both read the Constitution. They both read and and for example books, uh, <laughs> right? Uh, for example, uh, yeah, for books, you know yes. that that's 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 a thing uh, that they both had in common. And so I think politically they were very different. I mean, you know, John Roberts is a serious a serious conservative, but I think saw in Obama a you know a, a serious person who just came out. Uh, very differently on most political and legal issues. John Roberts is, is, you know, John Roberts, the title he has is not Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. It's Chief Justice of the United States. And Roberts takes that seriously. And Roberts sees himself as the representative of the judicial branch. And when he hears Trump saying, you know, judges are, the judge is stupid, or it's an Obama judge, or it's a, it's, it's a Bush judge, you know, the vulgarity and the simple mindedness and the cravenness with which Trump talks about the judiciary really does rub Roberts the wrong way. Now, how many votes that actually shift? I, I would have said not many, but this, this year, maybe it has had some effect, but temperamentally and intellectually, you know, Robertson and Trump could not be farther apart. There's a vacancy on the Supreme Court, even as late as September, October, November, given that there's a lame duck session. Does Trump fill it? And will he be able to fill it? Well, um, you know, I, I've also spent time thinking and asking about that question. And, and the, the answer I get from people who are knowledgeable about such things is there is at least a theoretical possibility that Mitch McConnell could do this in six to eight weeks. You know, it would take essentially burning down the Senate. Um, I mean- Imagine my question. Yeah. In the scenario in which there's a vacancy, then the election happens and Biden wins and the Senate is going to flip in January. So you have an incoming Democratic majority. In that circumstance, McConnell is going to try, is he not? I, I, I don't see a scenario where- McConnell doesn't try. Uh, I mean, McConnell, for reasons that are at least somewhat mysterious, is obsessed with the federal judiciary and the Supreme Court in particular, and has made it his mission to remake it uh, with Donald Trump. And so the opportunity, particularly if it's Ruth Ginsburg, you know, one of the liberals who's obviously not well, and is a possibility to leave the court, you know, is something that I think he's willing to take all kinds of political hell to do. You know, he doesn't have a lot of room for error. There are only 53 Republicans in the Senate. And given what the Senate did to Obama and to Merrick Garland, and keeping in mind that Antonin Scalia died on February 13th, 2016, and they didn't allow Obama to fill that seat for 11 months, to jam through a nominee at this point 
uh, would be, you know, hypocrisy of such a gigantic level that I think there are at least some senators who will have second thoughts. McConnell has had near total control of his uh, conference throughout his tenure. I think he would probably be able to get it through, but it's not, it's not a done deal. There will be people there who at least have some misgivings, but, you know, like Susan Collins is, is always having misgivings and concerns and, and, you know, second thoughts, but always winds up voting with McConnell anyway. I suspect uh, that would be the uh, approach also. So I'm going to resist the temptation to go hours, which is sometimes what I want to do with someone like you and while we're all sort of confined at home. But I will let you go. All right, pal. Thank you, Jeff Tubin, for spending some time with us. Congratulations on the book, True Crimes and Misdemeanors, The Investigation of Donald Trump. I wish you great success. Thanks, Pree. Take care, buddy. My conversation with Jeffrey Tubin continues for members of the Cathay Insider community. In this special bonus, Jeff and I discuss his craft and what it takes to tell a compelling story. Consider joining the Insider community. You can try it out for free for two weeks at cafe.com slash insider. Insiders get bonus stay tuned content, the exclusive weekly podcast I co-host with Ann Milgram, the United Security podcast co-hosted by Lisa Monaco and Ken Weinstein, recordings of weekly notes by Ellie Honig and me, and more. Again, to get a free two-week trial, head to cafe.com slash insider. That's cafe.com slash insider. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Jeffrey Tubin. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior audio producer is David Tattashore. And the CAFE team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Sam Ozer-Staten, Calvin Lord, Noah Azulai, and Jeff Eisenman. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.